Nuclear radiation health damage. While the nuclear industry likes to label the release of radiation from its power reactors as, quote, not significant, and direct the public's attention elsewhere, some people have made it their life's mission to watch what's happening with these releases, compile government medical data, and extrapolate results. Thus, when one contemplates the health damage done by the Dresden nuclear reactors in Grundy County, Illinois, only 43 miles from downtown Chicago, and a genuine expert, an epidemiologist who has crunched the official numbers for decades, tells you, We found that in the late 60s and the early 70s, just as the two Dresden reactors are being built, the Grundy County cancer death rate was 13% below the U.S. Every following decade, the gap got smaller until the Grundy rate exceeded the U.S. And in the most recent decade, the cancer death rate is 15% higher than the U.S. So Grundy County has gone from a low cancer county to a high cancer county. We also found with in terms of deaths in the last 30 years, the cancer death rate in children and adolescents, people who died by age 24, was 38% above the U.S., which is the highest excess of any county in Illinois. Cancer is a red flag for nuclear power's health damage, but childhood cancer is a double red flag for damage because it is the exposure to the fetus and the infant and the young child that is strongest and most uh, hazardous. Well, when Joseph Mangano of Radiation and Public Health Project reveals that kind of correlation between nuclear reactor operations and cancer deaths, and he has statistics for more than just the Dresden reactors in Illinois, you know that no matter where you are, you are stuck in that dangerous seat, the one that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, some startling new information on cancer rates in proximity to nuclear reactors. This from Joseph Mangano, who is an epidemiologist and the executive director of Radiation and Public Health Project in New York. We'll hear about the Dresden reactors in Illinois, Fermi Reactor in Michigan near Detroit, and then you'll find out how you, yes you, can participate in an exciting new study of radiation health damage all by providing a few of your children's baby teeth. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than you'll ever be able to get in a timely manner through the U.S. Postal Service. All of it coming up 
in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, October 12, 2021, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Opening with this sad story that Sister Megan Rice died on October 10th of congestive heart failure at the age of 91. In the summer of 2012, the then 82-year-old Roman Catholic sister hiked over a wooded ridge in East Tennessee and with two fellow peace activists intruded into a government facility nicknamed the Fort Knox of Uranium. On its exterior wall, the trio splashed human blood as a symbol of the cost of war and spray-painted biblical message such as, The Fruit of Justice is Peace. Sister Rice and her companions, Michael Wally and Greg Borcha Obed, declared this an act of protest and love in the service of a higher law, but the three were convicted of intending to endanger the national defense. They each spent about two years in prison, won release and vindication on appeal in 2015, and helped inspire other activists and works of journalistic nonfiction. The cause of death was congestive heart failure, Sister Megan Rice was 91 years old. In Virginia, the Supreme Court of that state refused to hear an appeal on a uranium mining ban that was put to it by Virginia Uranium Incorporated. The company asked the court to either order the Commonwealth to let VUI exercise its, quote, fundamental property right, end quote, to mine uranium, or to compensate them for taking away those property rights. But in 2019, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld Virginia's uranium moratorium, ruling in a 6-3 majority that Virginia has the right to regulate mining activities and the Commonwealth's moratorium on uranium mining, now of almost four decades duration, protects the safety and well-being of Virginians, their lands, and their waterways. As of October 8th, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has issued an order suspending the General License Authority under the NRC regulations to export radioactive material and deuterium to China General Nuclear. The United States has been exporting radioactive materials and deuterium to China? Who knew? And who thought this was a good idea in the first place? Two articles that we'll be linking to on the website the first is on Hanford. It's actually a three-part report on Hanford's dirty secret, and it's not 56 million gallons of nuclear waste. This is put out by the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, and it's a clear, concise overview of the problems at that site, which is deemed the most radioactive in the United States and the most radioactive in the Western Hemisphere. And another excellent article by Linda Pence Gunter that appeared in both Counterpunch and now in Beyond Nuclear International on the Tennessee Valley Authority's Belfont cancellation as being just the latest in a long line of nuclear debacles. Both will be up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 538. Korean Oceans and Fisheries Minister Moon Seong Hyok vowed to strengthen the monitoring of water and marine products for possible radioactivity from Japan's Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. He stated, 
We will expand radioactivity monitoring at our shores to prevent contaminated water coming from the Fukushima plant and strengthen inspections of marine safety tests and check the origin of country that products are imported from. The International Atomic Energy Agency also plans to strengthen related measures. This month, the IAEA will inspect the contamination being released at Unit 1 of Fukushima Daiichi and its effects on the ocean. But that doesn't stop Japan from going all numbnuts on it, and that's why, in terms of nuclear boneheadedness, here's... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out a week. Japan's industry minister, Koichi Hagiyuda, on Sunday, October 10, pledged to promote the decommissioning of the crippled Fukushima nuclear plant and recovery of the area as a top priority during his first visit to the prefecture since assuming office. He also told Fukushima Governor Masao Uchibori and the mayors of the municipalities hosting the power plant that his ministry will make its quote-unquote best efforts to release radioactive water from the facility hit by a massive earthquake and tsunami in March of 2011. The discharge of this water is now planned for the spring of 2023, and the mayors of Futaba and Okuma have urged him to take effective measures against the reputational damage associated with the planned discharge of the water. Let's unpack this one, shall we? First of all, decommissioning, the word that is used most frequently in connection with Fukushima, decommissioning can only be done on an intact nuclear reactor that has been in commission. This is not an intact reactor or three intact reactors. It is the wreckage of three reactors that had meltdowns. So it's not decommissioning some nuclear reactors. It's mitigating a radioactive disaster site. Secondly, in the original copy, it never referred to radioactive water. It referred to treated water. Well, they can treat the water to take out a lot of radionuclides, but there is no way to separate radioactive tritium from non-radioactive water. It's like trying to separate water from water. Can't be done. And that's why the water is being stored. And just because it's been stored for a long time and they've got a lot of it is no reason for them to dump it into the sea. They always call it the sea as opposed to calling it the Pacific Ocean, which makes it as large as it actually is. And as for being urged to take effective measures against the reputational damage associated with the planned discharge of the treated water, they're asking for propaganda and lies and positive stories and let's distract the public's attention with bright, shiny objects and promises of nirvana to take their eyes and minds off the genuine concerns associated with the planned discharge of radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean. This is the way they do it. They work on the wording. They put in distracting phrases. They diminish the importance of the important facts, which is this is tritium-contaminated radioactive water being put into the Pacific Ocean. Pretty soon they'll come up with the D word. They will say it will dilute the radioactive content. When it's not going to do that, it's going to disperse the content. In other words, if something is diluted, it becomes weaker. 
but all it takes is one atom of a radioactive substance to be dangerous. It never becomes not dangerous. So it doesn't dilute. What they would be doing is dispersing it into the ocean, which will not make anyone safer. It will be more dangerous, and it deserves to have the reputation it has, which is as something that is dirty and wrong, should not be done. We should not be manipulated to taking our eyes off the prize on this thing, which is they've got to figure out something to do with that water other than put it into the ocean, contaminate the food chain, and put all of us at greater risk from the radioactivity. And that's why, and that's why, Fukushima Industry Minister Koichi Hagiuda, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. A series of updates from the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN. Chile has become the 56th state to ratify the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. More good news? Swedish insurance group Landsforsakringar, I hope I did that right, which has over $40 billion in assets, has named the Treaty on the Prevention of Nuclear Weapons in its policy as a reason to not invest in nuclear weapons businesses. After receiving a letter from Hiroshima survivor and longtime ICANN activist Setsuko Thurlow, the new Japanese Prime Minister, Fumio Kishida, said... I believe that the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons is a very important treaty for a world without nuclear weapons. This is definitely a good sign from a nuclear-allied country that previously had dismissed the treaty. We'll have more from ICANN next week. In Russia, two rusty nuclear submarines will be raised from the seabed of the Barents and Kara Seas and brought to a shipyard for safe decommissioning. At least that's what they're planning on. The submarine known as K-159 sank in late August 2003 while being towed to a shipyard north of Murmansk. A joint Norwegian-Russian expedition examined the site in 2014 and concluded that at that point no leakage had so far occurred from the reactors to the surrounding marine environment. However, the bad shape of the hull could eventually lead to radionuclides leaking out. In a model study by Norwegian Institute of Marine Research, it showed that discharge of the entire cesium-137 inventory from the two reactors could increase concentrations in the cod in the eastern part of the Barents Sea by up to 100 times current levels for a two-year period after the discharge. Now, Russia's nuclear corporation Rosatom has announced the date for lifting K-159 to 2030. Also, a submarine dumped into the Kara Sea in 1982, known only as K-27, is being included in the list of nuclear objects on the Arctic seabed to be salvaged by 2030. The submarine has been corroding on the seabed for nearly 40 years. Here's hoping they get it right. In India, at Tamil Nadu, the Kudankulam Nuclear Power Project's first reactor went down on October 8th. This despite having just come out of 72 days of annual maintenance, and the reactor operated as it was supposed to for only 36 days. No word as to the nature of the glitch or when the reactor will be back online. And here is a numbnuts-affiliated story. In the UK, 
to mark the anniversary of the 1957 wind scale fire in Cumbria. Two protest groups have awarded a tainted prize to a rebranded nuclear plant in Lancashire. The Capenhurst Campaign and Radiation Free Lakeland have named the first George Monbiot Award winner to the Springfield's nuclear fuel manufacturing plant. A spokesperson for the two groups said, Mining, transporting, and processing of uranium increases the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, as does the use of vast amounts of concrete used in the building of nuclear reactors. Springfields has rebranded itself as a, quote, clean energy technology park. The nuclear industry is increasingly promoting itself as clean and renewable. And George Mombiot, an influential journalist, has played a key part in facilitating this rebranding. The award itself is a tarnished gold-colored cup made in low-quality plastic, symbolizing the ecologically damaging nature of the nuclear industry. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first... Hey, there's no significant release of radiation from nuclear reactors, so what you griping about? That's what the nuclear industry would like you to believe, and they spend a ton of money to help make that happen. But as you'll hear in today's interview, there's a lot about what radiation damage has been done to health by nuclear reactors, and it's all based on U.S. government data. Of course, that won't stop the nukesters from continuing to pound us with their lies, propaganda, bullying, mockery, and misplaced sense of entitlement. But repeat after me, they are wrong. And we prove it here every week. That is why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. For more than 10 years, Nuclear Hot Seat has been the one place where every week you can get a one-hour hit of verifiable nuclear information, interviews with genuine experts, a roundup of international news, numbnuts of the week, activist shoutouts, even a bit of musical theater. Where else can you find all this in a weekly counterbalance to the nuclear industry lies? But compared to the nukesters and limited financial resources, this show operates on a bake sale budget. And that budget is dependent on you, the listeners, to help us keep going. That's why, if you have come to value Nuclear Hot Seat's work, the time to support us with a donation is right now. It's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button to help us with a donation of any size. You can also set up a recurring donation, as little as $5 a month, which is the same as a cup of coffee and a nice tip here in the U.S., So if you value our different perspective on nuclear information, please do what you can now and know that however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Here's this week's featured interview. Sometimes the nuclear truth hides in plain sight. Only it takes people with the eyes and training to see what's really there. That's what today's guest does, and he has been doing it for more than 30 years. Joseph Mangano is the executive director for the Radiation and Public Health Project, based in New York, and he has served the organization since 1989. As an epidemiologist, in the interview he explains exactly what that means, Joe has X-ray vision to look at government health statistics and read what they really mean. That's what we talk about for this interview. 
which includes information on the Dresden nuclear site near Chicago and the Fermi nuclear site in Monroe County, Michigan, halfway between Detroit and Toledo, Ohio. He also explains the Tooth Fairy Project, which not only tested for radioactive strontium-90 from the 1950s and 60s atmospheric bomb tests, but is now being used to determine the cancer-causing effects of radiation from nuclear reactors. If you have a child who's been losing baby teeth, we have a way for you to put those teeth to good and lasting use. We'll cover that in the interview. I spoke with Joseph Mangano on Friday, October 8, 2021. Joseph Mangano, thanks so much for joining us today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Pleasure to be here. First, explain what the work of an epidemiologist is and what it is you do through Radiation and Public Health Project. Epidemiology is a long, fancy word for the the study of patterns and trends of disease. In our case, the Radiation Public Health Project does epidemiological studies of diseases near nuclear reactors in terms of cancers, uh, of infant mortality, uh, birth defects, and and other radiation-related conditions. Where do you get your source material from? Most of our material is actually taken right off the internet from public health agencies like the CDC. We do a very good job in this country of collecting data on mortality by cause and by incidence, cases of cancers. Unfortunately, not not too much analysis is done with them, but we use these sources a lot. The only homegrown source of information we have is the study we are doing on radioactive strontium-90 in baby teeth. We're going to get to that in a moment. There are two projects you have been working on that I want to address because they ultimately merge. The first, and this is material that has just been released to the public, are your findings in Grundy County, Illinois, which is the site of the Dresden Two Nuclear Reactor Nuclear Facility. What did you do and what did you find? Well, first, allow me to explain how we selected Dresden and Fermi. We've been in existence since the late 1980s. And because of where our main principles are located, most of our work has been in the Northeast. However, in recent years, the nuclear plants that we have spent much time with, namely Oyster Creek in New Jersey and Indian Point, New York, have shut permanently. And thus any additional radioactive exposures and emissions will no longer take place. So with our job essentially being done there, we looked to other areas in which aging and corroding nuclear reactors were in operation. And after consult with several experts, we selected these two. What were the reasons that you chose these two? Very simply, number one, they are both very old. Fermi has been operating 36 years and also has a history of a now closed reactor that had a near meltdown in 1966. And Dresden had one reactor that operated in the 60s, 70s, but two reactors that are still operating that are among the oldest in the country. They're 50 and 52 years old, which in nuclear parlance is ancient. And in both cases, I'll be honest, 
there are financial losses being incurred, which means that these are the are more likely than other nuclear reactors to be shut by their operators. And thus we felt our resources were best applied in these areas. What kind of findings have there been specifically regarding Dresden? Because that's the story that hit last week. Dresden is located in Grundy County, Illinois. It is 43 miles from the center of Chicago. As I said, these two reactors have been operating for over 50 years each. What we did was a study of cancer deaths and cancer cases in the county compared to the United States. Let's start with mortality. We're lucky that the CDC makes available mortality statistics on the internet beginning in the year 1968, all the way up to 2019. We found that in the late 60s and the early 70s, just as the two Dresden reactors are being built, the Grundy County cancer death rate was 13% below the US. With every following decade, the gap got smaller until the Grundy rate exceeded the US. And in the most recent decade, it is 15% above the US. That's 15% higher cancer deaths. Yes, the cancer deaths are 15, rate is 15% higher than the US. So Grundy County has gone from a low cancer county to a high cancer county. We also found with, in terms of deaths in the last 30 years, the cancer death rate in children and adolescents, people who died by age 24, is 38% above the US, which is the highest excess of any county in Illinois. Cancer is a red flag for nuclear power's health damage, but childhood cancer is a double red flag for damage because it is the exposure to the fetus and the infant and the young child that that is strongest and and, and most uh, hazardous. When we switched to incidents or cases, we found the following. In the most recent five-year period, which is 2013 to 2017, out of 102 counties in Illinois, Grundy County had the highest incidence rate, 25% above the United States. And this translates into, for the five-year period, just over 1,500 cases. Moreover, we found the cancers that are most sensitive to radiation are all exceptionally high. Child cancer. 41% above. Thyroid cancer, 60% above. Breast cancer, 6% above. And leukemia, 38% above. Red flag, red flag, red flag, red flag. These are issues of concern. Even though causes of cancer are multiple, our conclusion was we have to consider that emissions from Dresden all these years is a factor. There's an old saying that correlation is not causation. And clearly we have a correlation between the years of operation of the Dresden reactors and the increase in cancer deaths and cancer incidences within Grundy County. Is there enough here to claim that the radiation releases caused those cancers? 
we think our case can be made stronger. And what we're doing to make it stronger is now we are collecting baby teeth from mothers of, of young children near Dresden. When we have enough teeth, we will have them tested in a laboratory for radioactive strontium-90, which can only be created when a nuclear weapon explodes or when a nuclear reactor operates. When we have that information, we already have two other pieces of information sandwiched around that. We know that there are emissions from Dresden, which are one of the highest in the United States, by the way. That was in our report as well. And we also have these high cancer rates. The sole question that remains to be answered is, are these emissions actually getting into the body? And if we find that's the case, that is as strong a case as possible for, for the emissions from Dresden being a factor. How much of a factor? Is it 100% of the, of the reason? Is it 50%? That's very hard to say, but any amount is unacceptable. Sounds like there's a smoking gun here. We use that phrase a lot, smoking gun. Now, the findings that you've had at Dresden, you said you've previously worked on two that you mentioned were Oyster Creek and also Indian Point. The kind of findings that you were getting at Dresden, are they consistent with what you found at Oyster Creek and Indian Point? They are consistent with Oyster Creek and Indian Point and other areas where we've done analysis. However, I would say that I'm not aware of any series of excesses that I just rattled off, especially the highest cancer rate of any county in the state and the very high rates in the radiosensitive cancers. I've never seen anything quite as consistent as I have in Grundy County, the home of Dresden. In conjunction with Nuclear Energy Information Service, which is based in Chicago, you released press releases, and I believe there was an op-ed last week putting this information out, specifically in Illinois. What, if anything, has been the response to this information? First, we held a press conference on the 5th of October, announcing these results and announcing our intent to collect and test baby teeth. In addition, the NAIS group you mentioned, and our group, RPHP, submitted a letter to both the Illinois State Department of Health and the Grundy County Department of Health, including the report and its findings, and including an appeal for each of them to take these results seriously and join in, in the efforts to understand better why cancer rates are so high in Grundy County. As we speak, we have not yet had a response. Certainly, we expect to have one and hope that they do take these findings seriously. How did the media respond? Did they cover these talking points? We had four media that showed up during the press conference and one that reached out to us afterwards. That doesn't sound overwhelmingly responsive to the call. It could have been better. There's no question about it. I don't think there's anything that's, or many things that are much more serious than this. And I say this during the middle of the worst pandemic in a in hundred years. Certainly COVID-19 is terrible. However, cancer was with us long before COVID-19 and it'll be with us for a long time after COVID-19. It affects every family and every case. I mean, I, I, I'm talking 
in statistical terms here, but it's important I point out that every single one of these cases involved is a tragedy, whether the person survives or not and how long they survive. Cancer is, 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 is horrible. And especially when you get to cancers that can be possibly avoided, there is a call here. We need to avoid them. What actions either are being taken in response to these findings, or do you want to see taken in response to these findings? Nothing has been done by any outside party yet. We would like to see more media attention and and more response from our social media, which is something we've done as well. We posted the results on our website, Facebook page, and, and Twitter account. So yes, we'd like to see more response that way. Number two, we would like to see parents of young children rolling up their sleeves and submitting a a baby tooth or or more from from their children to contribute to the scientific effort. And third of all, we want to see the health departments and other regulators. For example, there's the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Each state has a Bureau of Radiation Protection. We would like to see them publicly discuss this issue because it isn't publicly discussed ever with any regulator because there is no regulation that imposes on the operators of nuclear plants. You have to keep cancer to a a certain level. It it is not addressed in any race. Yes, the emissions have to be below level. Yes, the amounts in the air and the food and the water must be below a certain level. Cancer not addressed. We think that's wrong. Let's take a look at the baby teeth issue and the history of it. As the Tooth Carry Project, this goes back quite a way. Please explain what the roots are of the determination to study baby teeth and what radiation and public health projects involvement in this has been. The origins of the baby tooth study are really the origins of the nuclear era, which of course was the original use of the atom was for military purposes. The atomic bombs used in Japan and then the nuclear weapons tests above the ground in the race for superiority in weapons between the US and the Soviet Union. In the 1950s, Many people were very fearful that there was going to be an all-out nuclear war. They were also fearful that even without a nuclear war, that fallout from these massive bomb tests, these mushroom clouds that went all across the planet, were actually getting into the precipitation and thus into the, the food chain in people's bodies. And there were a large number of protests, as you know, about continuing these tests, stop the tests, get this radiation out of my kids' milk. In August 1958, a scientist from the National Institute of Health, Herman Kalkar, wrote an article in the journal Nature, where he called for an international milk tooth census. Milk teeth is another word for baby teeth. He outlined a plan for measuring a particular chemical in the bomb fallout cloud. There are over a hundred, but he picked out one called strontium-90, which is very much like calcium. And when it enters the body, it quickly goes into the bloodstream and attaches to bone teeth, like calcium. Only unlike calcium, it's not good for your health. It's, it's bad. These are radioactive 
and they cause cancer. And once they're in the teeth or in the bones, do they ever migrate out? Or once they're in, the child is stuck with them until they either lose the baby teeth or if it comes into their permanent teeth, it stays there forever. It stays there forever or for many, many years. Every radioactive chemical decays at a certain rate. The half-life of strontium-90 is 29 years. And typically to represent disappearing, we use 10 half-lives, so 290 years. Well, we can all outlive that, can't we? We can try. So with the Tooth Fairy Project being something that was proposed, or at least the concept behind it, how did it take shape and what form did it have and what was its impact? Very quickly, two groups in St. Louis. One were scientists from Washington University and the other were citizens who had just formed a group called the Committee for Nuclear Information, got together and said, hey, this is a great idea. Let's do a baby tooth study. And for the next, over the next 12 years, they collected at least 320,000 baby teeth from children, many in the St. Louis area, but also from around the, the United States. When the teeth were collected and tested in a laboratory, the scientists found that as bomb tests went on, the levels of strontium-90 in baby teeth got higher and higher. And it reached a peak in 1963 when the levels were 50 times greater than what they were for children born in 1950. And afterwards, it, it dropped down sharply. Within the next five years, it dropped by a half. And that was because these teeth results were used to help bring about the test ban treaty. They were sent to President Kennedy and his science advisor, Jerome Wiesner, and they were used in testimony to the U.S. Senate for the treaty. A treaty which, by the way, very likely saved millions of lives, not just in the United States, but around the world. That original two study was a landmark in public health. Now, it seems that there are still baby teeth from that original study that had not been tested. Where are those teeth now and how do they factor into the current work that you are doing? Our group, RPHP, learned about the St. Louis study years ago in the 1990s and said, you know what, we should be doing a, a tooth study, not for atomic bomb fallout, but near nuclear reactors to measure how nuclear emissions from the reactors that were getting into children's bodies. And we did. And during that time, I got to know a number of people in St. Louis who had worked on the original study. And one day, a great surprise, a wonderful surprise occurred when I got a call from Daniel Cole, who was a biology professor. And he said, hey, we're looking for storage space uh, for the university. And we found some teeth. And I was surprised because no one had said there were any teeth left. Yeah, we tested the teeth and they're all gone. And the next day he really shocked me when he said, Joe, there are thousands and thousands of these teeth that are still here. Do you want them? The university doesn't want them. Barry Commoner, the biologist who was prominent in the study said, no, I don't want them. But he said, why don't you try RPHP? They're doing a teeth study. And they were donated to us. There are just a little under 100,000 teeth still remaining. 
These are people born 55 to 75 years ago. They constitute 37,000 people. Some gave more than one tooth. There are at least 12 teeth from every single state, except for Vermont with four. And they also represent people born from 45 different countries. And we, we took the teeth immediately with the knowledge that we're not gonna duplicate what Washington University did years ago. We know the levels went up during testing and down after they were banned. What they didn't do, and what we are gonna do is to answer the question, what were the health hazards from exposure to bomb fallout? It's a question that has received almost no attention from federal authorities. There were two small studies done in, in the 1990s, both are, have very low estimates of, of cancers. And using these teeth from people who are, you know, getting in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, and measuring strontium 90, which still is in there, and comparing it with death records, which is what we've we've asked for we are going to take a shot at that question. And may I add, this is only made possible by, by the great surprise number two. One day when I got a call from Mark Weiskopf, who is a public health professor at Harvard University, his interest is in heavy metal exposures, but he's used baby teeth a lot. And he found out about our study and said, my goodness, I, I want to help. And it was through his grant that he secured from the NIH that the teeth were actually entered into a database before the information of the teeth were on three by five cards. Now they're in an Excel file, which makes it so much easier to, to plan studies and evaluate them and so on. Again, Harvard is looking at heavy metals. We're going to be looking at radiation uh, in early life exposures. So, and we, we, by next year, we should have some results. Looking forward to receiving that and talking with you on the show for it. Let's bring this back to Dresden, and then we'll talk about the other nuclear reactor you're currently involved with. At Dresden, you are in the process of collecting teeth. Are they going to be compared against this database you are creating of the 100,000 teeth from the 50s and 60s? And is there anything further that you can gain from them that is beyond or other than the original studies? We're planning something that's never been done before. We're planning to compare early life exposures to bomb fallout and early life exposures to reactor emissions. Never been done. And we're doing it in the following way. Number one, we're collecting baby teeth from children, young children who now live near, near Dresden. And we are going to test them for the same strontium 90 that I mentioned. And we're also going to take teeth from the Chicago area, only people born in the 1950s who were exposed to bomb fallout. So in other words, you have grandparents exposed early to bomb fallout and grandchildren exposed early in life to reactor emissions, which is higher. I have no idea. Nobody has any idea. We're gonna find out. And of course, when we take the teeth from the earlier study and find out what the hazards of, of developing cancer, we can almost predict what's going to happen to today's children should they continue to live near these old deteriorating and leaking nuclear reactors. This is really uh, unprecedented and we are very excited that it, it, it's going to make a difference in, in the knowledge of, of the effects of this toxic uh, bunch of chemicals. 
I'm very excited as well. On a podcast, people can't see what my face is doing as I'm responding to what you're saying, but it's very exciting and again, potentially groundbreaking work. Now, there is a second nuclear reactor that you are also looking into and examining the way that you are currently doing it with Dresden. Tell us about that. The reactor you're talking about is Fermi 2, which is located about 25 miles south of, of the middle of Detroit, Monroe County, Michigan. Fermi 2 is also another aging reactor. It's been running since the mid 1980s. It is getting older, it is leaking. The emissions are relatively high compared to other US reactors. And similar to what we did at, at Dresden, we went out and did a study of cancer mortality near Fermi. And we found the same thing. Before Fermi opened in the 1970s and early 80s, the level of cancer deaths was below the US, something like 10% below. And, and now it's, I think, 14% higher. And again, it's a, it's, this is a large county. It's 150,000 people. So we're talking about a lot of cases involved. And of course, the cancer deaths in children is the highest in, in Michigan. We presented the information at a press conference. We had Christy Brinkley, the model and actress, help present. She has been a, a great supporter and is a board member for many years. She also happened to have been born in Monroe County, Michigan, and still has family there. And she took a, took a great personal interest in this. Since then, we followed up with an op-ed in the Monroe County News. We are in the process of collecting baby teeth. And finally, this week, the Monroe County News is in the process of running three full-page advertisements. That was made possible by Keith Gunter, who is an advocate from the area, describing the concerns about the cancer findings and about the need to donate teeth so they can get tested. These are ads that were created or prepared by Radiation and Public Health Project? Actually, they were created by Keith Gunter. It was, his group is called Opponents of Fermi 3. I forget the exact name, but we, of course, reviewed it. Christy Brinkley reviewed it as well. It's got her picture in it. And uh, we are awaiting teeth uh, contributions. Which brings us to a point. You talk about working on these two reactors. Does somebody hire you? And who pays you to do this work? Nobody hired us to work at Fermi or Dresden. We selected them. And we, meaning uh, I and our board of directors. As far as getting paid, RPHP is a, a nonprofit organization that gets along through grants from foundations and mostly from individual donations, which makes us independent of any industry or government influence. We want to do objective research. Unfortunately, in the history of the atomic era, research on health hazards has been very politicized from the very day they, they split the atom and, and got the Hiroshima bomb ready. It has been very political. And unfortunately, it's, it's kept us from getting the full story, full answers on, on what the hazards are. What's next for you and RPHP? For the moment, we're going to uh, use Dresden and Fermi as models where we have 
established concern with health, with local cancer rates. We're going to collect the teeth, test them, and then we're going to compare them with teeth in the area from people who are now in their 50s and 60s. In addition, we're going to do that kind of separately, a study or really multiple studies using the original baby teeth. We estimate that out of the 37,000 people whose teeth are in that file, about 6,000 of them are deceased and about 1,600 or so have died of cancer. We're going to compare people who've died of cancer versus those who are healthy now or have died of accidents or something. We've already done a small study 10 years ago where we looked at 20 teeth from people who died of cancer by age 50 and compared it with people healthy at 50. We found strontium-90 was more than double in the cancer group, statistically significant. Still a small number. We want to expand on that, but yet another red flag. You know, the more strontium in your body, the more likely you are to die of cancer is the hypothesis that's, that's being considered here. Again, something that no one has really looked at in the 60, 70 year era of, of nuclear weapons and nuclear power. What can we do to support your work? One, you can go to radiation.org. You can review the uh, information that we have on, on all these projects I've, I've described. Number two, for anybody, and especially those who live near nuclear reactors, you can certainly donate a baby to this. We, we've described very simply about, about the process. It's very simple to wrap a tooth up in, in tissue. You fill out a, a form, which is on the website, and you mail it. And that's it. Much like the people in St. Louis years ago, we, we are not just a scientific research group. It's really citizen science because we rely very much on the advocacy of concerned citizens and the actual help of, and it's usually mothers who donate their, their children's baby teeth, which is really, I think, the spectacular lesson of the original study. Everyone gives the scientists credit. Everyone gives the children whose teeth were donated credit. It was the parents, especially the mothers, who took time out of their very busy lives and did something good for the world. And we see that continuing to happen. Now, we have over 5,000 teeth in the current study near reactors, a number that's still growing, of course. Nothing like it was years ago, but still lots of teeth. And we've, we've published five journal articles on, on the results near other nuclear plants. More to come. Joe Mangano, this is exciting work you're doing. It is unprecedented work, and it is important because if the previous baby tooth study, the big one, actually was a crucial part of getting an atmospheric test ban treaty, there's no telling what the work you're doing now and in the future can achieve for all of us in terms of turning this nuclear juggernaut around. And for all you have done and all you continue to do, thank you. And thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Epidemiologist Joseph Mangano, Executive Director for the Radiation and Public Health Project. Their website is radiation.org. And you know they've been around for a long time to have a single word for their web address. Now it's time for some audience participation. If you live in Grundy County near Dresden's nuclear facility in Illinois, or in Monroe County, Michigan, near the Fermi nuclear reactors, and have a child who has baby teeth 
that you want to donate, on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 538, we will have a link to the form you need to use for submitting those baby teeth with a little bit more information. And there will also be an email address for you to contact Joe Mangano directly should you have questions, suggestions, or if you're a member of the media and want to get the story. Let's all do what we can to help this baby tooth story so we can take a bigger bite out of nuclear. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. First off, great news about the film In the Dark of the Valley, which deals with the Santa Susana Field Lab and what they call, quote, the story of a mother, Melissa Bumstead, in Southern California, who finds that an abandoned rocket testing facility called the Santa Susana Field Laboratory near her home was the site of one of the largest nuclear accidents in the U.S. She examines the possibility that the site may have exposed the surrounding community to cancer-causing radioactive and chemical waste. MSNBC President Rashida Jones said in a statement, this, Santa Susana Field Lab, is one of the most devastating man-made environmental disasters in our country that we rarely talk about. This film illustrates the relentless efforts of mothers in pursuit of truth and heightens the human side of the poignant story. And the film's director, Nicholas Mim, said, MSNBC gives these mothers a voice, a voice that has too long been stifled by apathy and greed, on a platform that won't let this story be lost in the shuffle once again. In the Dark of the Valley debuts on MSNBC on November 14, 2021, at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific Time. Congratulations all around. A relatively new organization, LABRATS, which stands for the Legacy of the Atomic Bomb Recognition for Atomic Test Survivors, is building an international register of atomic descendants. This will be to provide statistical information for campaigns and to show governments across the world that the testing program is still affecting more than a million descendants worldwide. If you are a descendant of a participant in the nuclear testing program, please register your details on a page that we will link to on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 538. There will be an overall number for each country, and please, you will need to indicate if the participant was in the military, a scientist, a civilian, or an indigenous person. And Nuclear Information and Resource Service, or NEARS, has a petition out we would like you to sign. It's to protect indigenous communities and the environment by saying no to the proposed uranium reserve. President Biden promised voters to invest in environmental justice and clean energy, but uranium mining would undermine both. The Biden administration is moving forward with a Trump-era proposal to establish a nuclear fuel stockpile, otherwise known as a Strategic Uranium Reserve, or SUR, that would encourage more mining and put many frontline indigenous communities and treasured sacred places like the Grand Canyon, Bears Ears, and the Black Hills at risk from uranium contamination. We will link to this petition so that you can sign it. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, October 12, 2021. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from 
nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, neis.org, nirs.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or icanw.org, variety.com, Labrats International, salsalabs.org, washingtonpost.com, chathamstartribune.com, newsbreak.com, koreatimes.co.kr, japantimes.co.jp, einnews.co, thehindu.com, cumbriacrack.com, reuters.com, truthout.org, tw.com, and the captured and compromised by the industry they are supposed to be regulating and do such a lousy job of doing so, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Hey, there's no need to hunt around and try and find a link to each week's episode of Nuclear Hot Seat. The way to get it is easy. Go to our website, nuclearhotseat.com, and you'll see a yellow box there where you can sign up, first name, email address. We will send you each week's link as soon as it posts, along with a short description of the contents. We don't bug you. We don't sell your information. We just want to make sure that you get Nuclear Hot Seat every week. So go to the website, sign up. You'll have no problems in the future. You can opt out whenever you'd want to. But why would you want to? Now, in terms of stories, this is a participatory democracy here. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion with someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate these weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, along with everything else that we put into this show, take a moment and go to nuclearhotseat.com, look for the big red button, click on it, follow the prompts, anything you can do will help, and we will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2021, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you none of us is out of prison as long as one nuclear bomb exists. That's a quote from Sister Megan Rice. That's it. That's your nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.